Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow. Twisting your senses. Keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, it's happened. I've been hit by the first major illness of the season, a plague that's been coursing through co-workers and loved ones alike, spreading like a voracious zombie virus, leaving those in its wake drained and empty. So, while we take a breather, and I hole up under a mountain of blankets, clutching a cup of hot tea and feeling sorry for myself, I'm going to turn it over to our editor, Seth Williams, for a little bit of housekeeping. Hello, everybody. This is Seth, the editor here at Tales to Terrify. I hope you all are having a wonderful day. I have a few pieces of housekeeping. First, we are still open for submissions for works under 2,500 words. Check out the guidelines on our website. I really look forward to reading what you all send in. And bonus points if it has a ship, boat, lighthouse, ghost something along those lines. Finally, I'd like a little help. This year, we've published some amazing original works. If you have nominating privileges at one of the organizations who recognize members of our community, please keep our authors in mind. As always, if you have a question or a suggestion about the podcast, please email talestoterrify at gmail.com. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the five-star reviews, and thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you, Seth. And I just want to second, once again, how much we appreciate your support. 
both through reviews and ratings and on Patreon. If you want to count yourself among our patrons, there's never been a better time. We're on the verge of wrapping up our first piece of bonus content, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, read by the talented Graham Dunlop. We've been releasing the story weekly, but I'll be putting up the entire book in one unabridged recording soon for any patrons who want to get caught up in a single go. So if you're not a member yet, head on over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify and sign up to get a little more terror in your life. Now, on with our stories. We've got a double feature this week, two tales from author Brian Rapida. Both feature some decidedly dark themes and content, even for us. So if there are some horrors you'd rather not explore, I highly encourage you to check the show notes before listening. Brian Rapata is an expat author currently living and working in South Korea. His short fiction in various genres has appeared in venues such as Chilling Ghost Stories, Shock Totem, Mnemonymous, and Amazing Stories. Additionally, he was a winner in the annual Writers of the Future competition in 2006. The first story we'll hear from him, The Plunge, was originally published in 2009 in the British anthology Zencore, Scriptus Innominatus, the seventh volume of the Mnemonymous series of anthologies, which was shortlisted for the British Fantasy Society Award for Best Anthology for that year. Children of the Night, join me for Brian Rapida's The Plunge. The last one had gone screaming. He hated it when he fucked up, and one went screaming. Frank made up for it by snapping the next one's neck even more viciously than usual. One swift whip-crack of his strong hands, and the head almost popped off the body, then planted a sharp kick on the boy's naked backside that sent him off the edge of the platform and into the furnace. Frank craned his neck over the edge and watched the boy fall fifty feet down into the pit until his body came to rest on the massive pile of bodies and ashes and kindling. A few seconds later, the flames obscured the boy, wrapping him in their orange glow. Frank glanced at the access platforms of his co-workers. Directly across from him, on the other side of the charnel pit, Mike, who always had pastrami for lunch, had already gone back to his line and was paying Frank no attention whatsoever. On down the row of access platforms, the others were similarly attentive to their work. Satisfied that he had vindicated himself from the botched job, Frank settled back into his casual routine. Step. Snap. Push. Step, 
Snap. Push. Frank glanced back at the long line of children stretching behind him, all of them waiting their turn to step up to the edge, have their necks mercifully snapped, then plunge into the furnace. His line stretched back farther than he could see, and he knew that kids were still being shipped by the truckload from the camps where they slept four in a bed. Only two hours into his shift, with ten yet to go, the heat was already nearly unbearable. Frank couldn't remember when the fires had been so bright, or when the ashes of so many charred and blackened bodies had floated up so nauseously. On slow days, he usually counted how many children he sent into the furnace, but today he had already lost count, and there were hundreds more coming. With luck, he would get some overtime in. Step, snap, push. Step, snap, push. Another one went screaming, and Frank swore. He could feel the eyes of his co-workers turning toward his access platform and wondering what had occupied his thoughts to such an extent that he had botched two jobs and sent two poor children to die a horrible death in the incinerator. Every once in a while, you just couldn't help it, and one of them managed to get out a scream, no matter how well you thought you broke their neck. But most of the time, they were dead as soon as their necks snapped, or soon enough after that they didn't have to worry about the pain of burning to death. Frank forced himself to concentrate through the monotony of his work, and soon felt the soothing, regular rhythm return. Step. Snap. Push. He knew he hadn't been himself lately, had hardly been able to bring himself to participate in the customary banter with the guys at lunchtime, or taste his deli loaf sandwich. And what was worse, he knew that his job was suffering for it. If he botched too many more broken necks, the inspectors were sure to bitch, and he would lose the most steady-paying job he'd ever had. If the suits weren't completely satisfied that the furnaces were completely humanitarian, they'd shut down the operation, despite the 200 people it employed under the New Works Progress Initiative. And if they went back to lethal injection, Frank would be out of a job. He couldn't help it, though. Esperanza's swift, totally unexpected departure still rankled on his thoughts and he still came up with the same questions. In his mind's eye, he read and reread her parting note. Dear Frank, I want to have a baby, so I'm going to the moon. I hear they like babies there. Esperanza. He hadn't seen that coming at all. She'd always seemed so happy with him. The thought of her long, exotic legs twining around someone else's body in their cherished act of lovemaking was almost unthinkable. Just imagining her with some other man for the sole sake of procreation made him seethe with anger, and he gave the little blonde head in his hands a ferocious turn in order to vent his rage, nearly threw the already limp body into the furnace instead of administering only the slight push that was necessary. At least his job provided stress relief. The next in line, 
a girl no more than six years old, saw his violent treatment of the boy in front of her and started to cry. At first, Frank was startled by the sight. The children were normally drugged shit-faced so that they would complacently take their turn when it came time to step up to the platform. But the drugs had been in short supply lately. The plant had had to cut its budget for the third time this year. Frank bent down on one knee to look the girl in the eye. What's the matter, dear? He asked. She was Hispanic like Esperanza, and the bridge of her nose bent a little, just like Esperanza's. Why? The girl snuffled through her tears. Why are you going to put me in there? Because it's my job, dear. Everyone has to have a job to do. You understand that, don't you? She nodded, even though she most likely didn't understand at all. It's scary, though, she said. I know, honey, but this is your job, you see, and it's very important. So be a brave little girl for me, all right? He reached out his arms as if to hug her, to take her head in his arms. She backed away from him. I... I don't think I want to go in there, she said. She was working herself into a panic, despite the brain-dulling drugs. Another moment, and she'd bolt, Frank knew. She wouldn't get very far, but if she bolted, he would surely have to fill out an incident report. She turned around, just as he knew she would. Frank lunged after her, covering the distance between them in one instant. He wrapped his arms around her middle and tackled her as if she was an offensive lineman. She fell to the hot metal floor under his weight, and her face impacted hard enough to chip teeth. She gave a clipped shriek that only Frank could hear over the roaring crackle of the inferno. With his right knee, Frank kept the girl pinned to the ground while he reached out and took her head in his hands. He twisted. The girl's neck snapped, and her body went limp. Frank picked her up in his arms and took three strides to stand on the edge of the platform. He looked down at the girl and thought of Esperanza again. The girl's crooked little nose was now bleeding. He tilted his arms, and the girl tumbled off and into the furnace. He watched her plummet until her body faded into the orange glow. Then Frank turned to the next in line, a boy of about eight who stood blinking stupidly. At least his dosage seemed to be about right. Well then, Frank said to him, sorry to keep you waiting. The boy stepped up, and Frank snapped his neck. The tendonitis in Frank's fingers flared up briefly. He knew he should really get one of those tappers' hammers some of the other guys used. A quick whack to the back of the neck, much easier on the fingers. But he couldn't quite bring himself to do it, yet. They seemed so impersonal. He was, after all, a humanitarian at heart. Step. Snap. Push. Step. Snap. Push. The workday wore on and still there was no end to the line of children that stepped up to his platform. Frank concentrated on his work, 
and was not embarrassed again by a botched break or a screaming child. Still, his thoughts could not help wandering. In his mind he saw Esperanza gingerly holding their baby, his and hers, in her arms and smiling, and on her face was something beyond the contentment she usually wore after their lovemaking. He saw her fulfilled. I could go to the moon, he thought. I could chase Esperanza wherever she goes, and I could tell her I love her, and I'm ready to do anything for her, even have a child if that's what she wants. Step, snap, push. Step, snap, push. Don't be silly, he chided himself a moment later. There's no way we could make enough to raise a child. If I lose this job, I'll have no income, no life, no future. Still, the thought of looking into a child's eyes and seeing something more than part of his job was oddly appealing. Perhaps if he found Esperanza, he could one day look at a child and see his eyes, his features, his face reflected in the face of the child. It was an intoxicating thought, and for a moment he could almost understand why Esperanza had gone away. He reached for the next head and found only empty air. Snapping back to the matter at hand, he saw a boy of about thirteen standing just outside his reach. The boy's eyes were wide and alert. He had been nimble enough to dance just outside of Frank's grasp. Frank swore. When one went screaming was bad enough, but when one tried to postpone the inevitable, it was really annoying. Frank made a grab for the boy, but once again came up empty-handed. He stood for a long moment regarding the boy, young man really, before him, looked straight into the young pair of eyes, far too alert. To Frank's amazement, the boy snapped to attention and gave him a smart salute a drill structor would be proud of. Then, the boy flashed the thumbs-up sign to the line of children behind him. And then the boy jumped. Such was his surprise that Frank almost reached out to catch him before he could regain his wits. He merely watched the boy, fully awake and alert, but not screaming, as he plunged into the heap of bodies and burst into flames. After a few moments, the boy stopped moving. Before Frank could recover from the spectacle, the next in line, a girl of perhaps twelve, stepped gracefully up to the edge and pirouetted off into the inferno, smiling contentedly all the way. She turned a somersault in the air like an Olympic diver and landed on the heap of bodies and ashes. Soon after, she stopped moving as well. Child after child strutted boldly and calmly up to the precipice, each performing an individual dive into the red-hot inferno. Frank watched, dumbstruck, as boys and girls cartwheeled and flipped and somersaulted and belly-flopped and scissored and cannonballed into the yawning chasm before them, without even the slightest word of encouragement or humane blow of death to spare them the searing pain below. And then the last one turned to regard Frank, 
with absolutely no trace of malice on his face. The boy gave Frank the finger, and then he too disappeared into the blazing inferno. Frank punched out twenty minutes early that day. That was Brian Rapida's The Plunge, as read by me. As always, link to my personal page is in the show notes. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our second story is another disturbing piece from Brian Rapida. This story was originally published in Shock Totem No. 1 in 2009. So, without further ado, Brian Rapida's The Dead March. Tommy Shaw at school said that there was love, there was sex, and there was fucking. Love was mostly in the movies. Real people didn't do it if they could help it. Sex was for married couples. They usually did it to make up after a big fight. But fucking, that wasn't about two people at all. Fucking was when you just needed a ride and you didn't give a shit about anyone else. Aaron thought Tommy Shaw was mostly full of shit, but he had a point on that one. 
Mom and Dad hadn't had sex in a long time. They just fucked instead. Well, Dad fucked, and Mom just lay there and tried not to cry. And Aaron knew Tommy Shaw was right because Dad hadn't figured out that anything was wrong yet. Dad wasn't too observant when he came home drunk and needing some, but tonight Dad was especially clueless. Dad was really going at her and occasionally muttering things like, Come on, bitch, get wet. Aaron had long since given up trying to cover his ears and his pillow. In a single wide that was twelve steps from any point to another, there wasn't any getting away from the racket. So Aaron just sat down on the little square of floor between his bed and the wall and pulled his box of G.I. Joes out from under the bed. Not the action figures he kept on his nightstand for his dad's benefit, but the ones he kept under his bed that he could never show dad. The vintage ones where he had smeared red permanent marker all over their plastic chests. He wished they'd make G.I. Joes with openable chest cavities and blood and entrails, but what the heck, he could use his imagination. Mom didn't make any noises anymore, not even teeth-clenched grunts of pain or half-stifled sobs. She didn't say anything anymore either, at least not out loud. Aaron thought Dad would have noticed that by now, but then Dad hadn't been home since Friday night. Aaron had never been drunk, but he thought it must fuck up your sense of smell somehow. It had to, or else Dad would have noticed. Or maybe it was that Mom usually smelled anyway. If it wasn't cigarettes and armpits, it was something else. Either way, Dad must not have paid much attention to the way she smelled. Dad would have to find out sometime, though, and when he did, he'd yell and scream and maybe hit once or twice. But until then, Aaron just played with his G.I. Joes. He was a bit old for action figures, really. The other sixth graders at school had already started to give them up in favour of playboys or hustlers, but you were never too old for entrails, even if they were just make-believe. So Aaron replayed his favourite scenario, where he was the general and Sergeant Slaughter and Flint and Lady J and all the rest stormed the Cobra stronghold. Men got blown open at every turn, but like the good soldiers they were, they kept going through spilling guts and decimated chest cavities towards their goal. Nothing could stop a real soldier. Right in the middle of the best part, though, Dad figured it out. His shriek brought Aaron up short. Dad drank like a man, but he screamed like a girl. Slowly, Aaron began putting his special G.I. Joe figures back into the box. He got them all in and out of sight, beneath the bed, just before Dad threw his door open. You! Dad said. His eyes were bleary from drink, but they blazed wildly. His pot belly sagged over the band of his stained white cotton briefs. You sick little fuck! What did you do to her? Aaron didn't answer. He knew better. Sometimes saying things just made Dad madder. He merely backpedalled on the floor until his back was against the wall, then curled up as tightly as he could. Dad took two steps across the room, grabbed Aaron by the arms, and hauled him upright. Aaron cringed, but did not look at Dad. Answer me! Dad shook Aaron hard. 
He pulled back his right fist. What did you do to her? Did, did you? That thing you do. Did you? I didn't kill her, Aaron said. I never kill anything. You killed her. Dad hesitated. His fist was stalled in the air. What did you say? You killed her, Aaron said. You hit her too many times. I just made her get back up. Mom came into the room then. She didn't say anything. She didn't have to. Dad's back was to her, but he couldn't have missed her arrival. Her aroma filled the room. His fist still raised. Dad turned around slowly. He saw Mom, and his face drained of colour. His cheeks puffed out as if trying to contain vomit. For a moment, nothing happened. The faint buzzing of flies around Mom's head was the only sound in the trailer. Then Dad released Aaron and stumbled out of the room, pushing past Mom with his hand over his mouth. Halfway to the front door, he sank to the floor and vomited all over the living room carpet. Afterward, he sat back on his knees, his belly heaving. Then he picked himself up and stormed out of the trailer without even bothering to put on any clothes. The front screen door banged shut. Aaron took a deep breath. He struggled to bring his breathing back to normal. After a few more gulps of air, he took a few steps across the room towards his mother. She stood motionless, waiting for him. Aaron sighed. How'd he figure it out? he asked. His mother couldn't answer him with words. Instead, she held out her left hand. In it was the lumpy, discoloured tip of her tongue. Dad must have bitten it off when he was fucking her. Dad didn't come back for three days. So for those days, Aaron didn't bother to go to school. Instead, he stayed in the trailer, ignoring the noises of the trailer park around him. He heated cans of soup on the stove when he got hungry, but mostly he talked to Mom. He told her about all the things he'd never told her before. His mad crush on Tommy Shaw in his gym class. The time he'd spied on the Millers when they were fucking. Even Felix, the dead German shepherd he kept in his own private spot in the woods behind the trailer park. He told her stories he made up, stories he'd read, and he even got out his G.I. Joe figures and told her the gut-squishing story of storming Cobra's lair. She listened intently, and her eyes almost seemed to have some life in them at the exciting parts, and never once did she ignore him to light up a cigarette. And at night, he slept wrapped tightly in her arms, immersed in the sweet scent of her. In the morning, he cleaned fragments of her skin and hair off the bedsheets for her, and he lay in bed sometimes for the rest of the day, just talking to her. Finally, Dad returned on Wednesday. Aaron peeked out the bedroom window as his battered old Ford pickup rumbled up in front of the trailer. A rusted yellow chainsaw lay in the bed. Aaron kissed Mom goodbye and went back to his own room. Begging Dad not to take her away would do no good, and neither would kicking and screaming and flailing. So Aaron did not emerge when Dad came in 
Not even when Dad loaded Mom in the pickup for a drive and came back a few hours later, alone. Aaron just sat on the floor by his bed and played with his G.I. Joes, the lame ones without the red permanent marker entrails. Dad came in and found him like this several hours later. He didn't storm in this time, at least. He actually knocked. Dad stood there for a moment before he spoke. Then he said, How's it going, kiddo? Fine, Aaron mumbled. Dad paused. At length he said, Mom's not coming back. Aaron nodded. I know. Dad studied his feet. It's probably best if you don't talk about her anymore. I mean about how she... About why she went away. Like, to your guidance counsellor and shit. Okay. You shouldn't go looking for her either. Okay. Another pause. Bought something for you. Dad held out his right hand. He had a plastic Kmart bag in it. Aaron reached over and took the bag. He opened it and pulled out a G.I. Joe action figure. Quick kick. I didn't think you had that one yet, Dad said. I don't. Thanks, Dad. No problem. Who's my boy? Aaron swallowed. He knew the answer. Love you, Dad. Love you too, kiddo. Aaron got up in the morning while Dad was still sleeping. He dressed quietly and slipped out the front door of the trailer. Dad's ratty old pickup was parked askew out front. The entire vehicle was filthy with caked mud, and the front bumper drooped at an angle toward the ground. The passenger side window was busted and covered with duct tape and a garbage bag. In the bed was the only tool Dad owned, a rusty yellow chainsaw with a worn blade. Aaron shuddered. He tried hard not to think about that blade slicing through Mom. Aaron started walking through the trailer park. The residents were just beginning to wake. The Hernavich's little chihuahua was yapping from inside their grey metal single wide, and the Coriander's trailer was vibrating to a chorus of grunts and groans. Aaron held his nose as he passed by the eight bulging trash bags that the Deep Nose had set out for the trash man who was supposed to come on Tuesdays, but hadn't been by this week. About a quarter mile down McCandless Road, Aaron raced a train across the tracks, then continued on his way. Halfway to school, he stopped. Lying fifty paces ahead in the dirt by the side of the road was a raccoon. Aaron approached it slowly, looking around in all directions to see if anyone was around. A car whisked by at easily sixty miles an hour, The people inside paid him no attention whatsoever. Aaron knelt over the raccoon. He petted its head and the fur on its back. Then he caressed the slicks of red on its underbelly. He leaned in closer and whispered, Get up. It twitched once, and then its little paws scrabbled in the dirt by the side of the road. After a few attempts, it managed to get its feet under it and lurch upright. Then it stood still, looking up at Aaron for direction. Go, Aaron said. He pointed back in the direction of the trailer park. 
Keep going on into the forest until you find Felix. The raccoon padded off, dragging a patch of fur and skin on the ground. Aaron watched it go until he saw a car coming in the distance. Then he turned around and resumed his trek towards school. He knew the raccoon would find its way. Aaron thought he might name it Randy. Harris K. Thurman Middle School sprawled over one story, with hallways that twisted and turned in every direction possible. Aaron arrived late to first hour, and his teacher assigned him an after-school detention. First and second hour passed quickly. Aaron paid little attention in either. Third hour was gym. Aaron made his way through the building, through the gym, and into the boys' locker room. There, Tommy Shaw was already with his usual audience. Ben Riegsecker and Julian Delmont and Shane Unziker. Aaron's gym locker was close by, so he could not help eavesdropping. Tommy was bragging about fondling Elizabeth Yoda's titties, and the others were wrapped. Shane Unziker even sported a bit of a boner in his underwear as he changed into his gym shorts. Tommy Shaw was usually full of shit when he bragged. Everybody knew he hadn't gotten anywhere near Elizabeth Yoda's titties. But he told a good tale, so he was worth listening to. Aaron pretended to be listening, just for an excuse to watch Tommy. The boy was tall and athletic, and beneath the cloying scent of right guard, he had a private smell, one only for Aaron. He smelled like entrails. Aaron could smell it even stronger today. It was as strong as his mother's smell just before she'd bled to death inside. Aaron watched as Tommy lifted off his shirt, then dropped his pants. He wore a bright red pair of boxes. Aaron chewed on his bottom lip. Should he say anything to Tommy? Warn him somehow? With a scent as strong as his, Tommy couldn't have long left. But Aaron couldn't quite think of a good way to bring it up. You smell like entrails wasn't really a great way to start a conversation. Then Tommy turned around and looked at Aaron. He caught Aaron staring at him and rolled his eyes. Fag, he muttered, and his friends guffawed. Aaron quickly looked away. The rest of the school day passed uneventfully. Aaron reported to detention on time and sat for an hour and a half staring at the clock. He wished he was out in the forest playing with Felix and Randy, his new raccoon. Dad was there at the trailer when Aaron got back. He sat at the kitchen table with a half-empty beer bottle. Four empties lay strewn on the floor beside his chair. The fuck have you been? Dad muttered. His words came out slurred. I had detention, Aaron said. Detention? Lousy fuck up, Dad said, and took a large swig from the bottle. Ain't never gonna amount to nothing. Aaron beat a quick retreat out of the living room. He squeezed around the kitchen table and headed toward his room. Once there, Aaron took out his box of special G.I. Joes and started playing with them to try to forget the sting of Dad's words. Eventually, he managed, because this was his room and these were his men. Here, he wasn't a lousy fuck-up. He was a general. 
He came up with a new scene, one where Tommy Shaw stormed Cobra's lair with all the rest of the soldiers. Grenade shrapnel made a red mess of most of Tommy's chest cavity during the assault, but he still got the job done. Aaron lost the fantasy when he heard Dad's pickup truck start. He didn't bother to go to the window to see Dad drive off. As the rattly old truck drove out of earshot, Aaron could hear the millers from two trailers over, fucking. The teachers and students at school were sombre the next morning. Aaron found out why during second period. He overheard two girls talking before the teacher got there. Tommy Shaw had been with his friends yesterday waiting at the train tracks for a slow-moving train to pass. In an effort to show off, Tommy climbed up onto one of the rail cars and tried to shimmy through the space between. He'd fallen. I heard he was ripped in two, one of the girls said. Julian Delmont and Ben Riegsecker and Shane Unziker and the rest weren't in PE class. Aaron wondered if they'd been at the train tracks when their friend was torn apart. Three nights later, while Dad was snoring over his beer in the middle of the living room, Aaron crept out of the trailer with a flashlight and a crowbar the Millers didn't know he'd borrowed. The trailer park was unusually quiet. Aaron made it to the edge of the park before the Hernovich's Chihuahua Tinks started yapping. Aaron hurried on past. Mr Hernovich yelled at his dog to shut up, but didn't look out the window to see what had excited the dog. He headed first into the forest. Felix and Randy were both at the spot where he'd left them, waiting. Come with me, he told them. We have work to do. It was past one o'clock in the morning when Aaron made it to the cemetery on the edge of town. He wasn't supposed to hang out in cemeteries, even though they were peaceful and smelled like dirt. Dad forbade him. Dad didn't want to take the chance of getting any unwanted house guests. Aaron hurried among the gravestones, shining his flashlight on each just long enough to make out the name. Finally, after another hour, he found it. There was no gravestone yet, but the smell of freshly turned earth was unmistakable. Aaron's heart beat a little faster. He switched off his flashlight. He lowered himself onto his knees on top of the fresh earth, then lay face down on his stomach over the grave. He smelled the tangy odour of soil beneath his nose, the faint scent of worms wriggling beneath them. He pressed his heartbeat into the grave. Get up, he whispered into the dirt. There was no response at first. Aaron began to count his heartbeats. They grew even, rhythmical. And then something beneath the dirt began to respond to his heartbeats. Each thump of his heart brought an answering thump still faint. Tommy beating on the inside of his cask. Aaron's heart beat still faster, as did the echo from beneath. It was getting stronger. Finally, Aaron drew back. He turned to Felix and Randy. Go to it, boys, he said. The two animals came to the fresh earth and started digging with their front paws. They sent clumps of dirt flinging behind them. Even though Felix and Randy didn't tire, it still took a long time for them to clear the soil away. Aaron guessed it was after three hours before he could see the top of the polished black casket, now dulled by dirt. Aaron jumped down into the grave and wedged his crowbar under the casket's lid. 
He pulled with all his strength, and the lid popped open a crack. He worked at it a little more, and it opened another crack. A hand shot through the opening. The fingers flexed, as if grasping for something. Aaron clutched the hand and pulled. It was hard going, but between Aaron pulling and Tommy wriggling, they managed to get Tommy's torso out of the casket. It was easy after that. The rest came out more quickly, until Tommy lay face down in the dirt. Aaron helped him up, and finally they stood face to face. Aaron looked at Tommy. Tommy blinked back. I I wasn't sure we could get you out, Aaron said. Tommy waited silently. Aaron's stomach fluttered. I'm glad you're here, he said. He reached out to run his fingers through the dirt and grime of Tommy's face. I always thought you were beautiful. Aaron took a step forward. Tommy spread his arms in welcome. Aaron reached out and wrapped his arms around the boy. Tommy embraced him back. Tommy's body was cold. Aaron shivered. He pressed himself closer yet. He folded his body into Tommy's larger one and leaned in to kiss Tommy. He tasted the scent of rot and the tang of dirt on Tommy's lips. With his right hand, Aaron fuddled with the ugly blue suit Tommy had been buried in. Aaron ran his fingers up under the shirt, felt the sutures just above the boy's navel where he'd been sewn back together for the funeral. He felt Tommy's chilled skin. But then something rammed into Aaron from the side. He went sprawling face first in the grave dirt and choked on a mouthful of grime. As he struggled to get his hands under him and push himself up, he heard the rattling start-up of a chainsaw's motor. He rolled over in time to see Dad slice through Tommy, starting at the left shoulder and working downward across the boy's chest. The chainsaw, encountering resistance, churned harder. Embalming fluid leaked out of Tommy's veins onto the ground. No! Aaron screamed. But there was nothing he could do but watch as Dad sliced, worked the chainsaw out of a kink of bone, then sliced again and again. Finally, Dad let the chainsaw wind down. The grate of its motor died into the night. Tommy lay on the ground in even more pieces than when the train had finished with him. Dad stood panting for a moment, staring down at the mess of body parts at his feet as if to ensure none of them were moving. At last, Dad looked at Aaron. This has to stop, Aaron, he said. It was for your own good. Aaron said nothing. He only glared across the stretch of ground at Dad. Tears formed at the edge of his eyes. Get up, Dad said. He lowered the chainsaw and extended his hand. Aaron didn't take it. I said get up, Dad repeated. He reached out to grab Aaron by the arm. Aaron shrugged him off. He got to his feet on his own. Come on, Dad said. The truck's not far. We're going home. Aaron contemplated the chainsaw that Dad held in his left hand. Then he looked back at Dad. No, he said finally. We're not 
he bent over the nearest gravestone. That's an order, Dad said. Now! But his stern tone carried no weight. He backed up a few steps when he noticed Aaron wasn't paying him any attention. Or, what are you doing? Dad asked. Aaron ignored him. He caressed the cold stone of the grave marker. Get up, he whispered to the body beneath. No, Dad said, backing off another few steps. Aaron, stop it! Stop it! Aaron bent over the next grave marker. Get up, he said to it too. Dad didn't wait around for soil to start sifting and churning. He stumbled backward a few steps, stepping among the graves like he was afraid of stepping in cow shit. He glared across the top of a gravestone at Aaron. You fucking monster, he said. Don't you ever come home again. He turned to run. Don't go, Dad, Aaron said. Don't you want to stick around and see me be something? Dad didn't hear. He sprinted to the edge of the cemetery, got in his truck, threw the gear into reverse and sped away. He forgot his chainsaw. Aaron watched him go. Twin tears rolled down his cheeks. At length he shrugged and bent over another grave marker. Get up, he whispered, laying his hands on the stone. Aaron was tired when he arrived at the edge of the trailer park with his army behind him. It was hard work liberating his men from their dirt prisons, but once he'd gotten a few out, they'd helped the others, and finally they'd marched. A few of his men had lost arms or fingers or toes in the trek, but they arrived ready to do battle. The sky was just beginning to lighten as they swarmed down on the tiny dwellings, encountering no sign of resistance. The millers were busy screaming at each other, and Jeb Fawkes was too busy fucking his latest five-dollar prostitute to notice. Hattie Longmount, however, managed to look out her window at exactly the wrong moment. She saw the lumbering army, but instead of screaming, she promptly closed the curtain again to go back to her LSD. Aaron brought his troops to surround the lonely single wide on the back of the lot. Dad was home. The pickup was there. The soldiers clustered in behind Aaron, waiting for his signal. Let me go first, he said, and went in. Dad was inside. He was in the living room throwing clothes pell-mell into a suitcase. A half dozen empty beer bottles lay on the living room floor. He would have been long gone by now if he hadn't paused to drink himself into a stupor. He looked up as Aaron entered, his face paled. Neither spoke for a moment. Aaron merely looked at Dad. I I thought I told you never to come back here. I had to, Aaron said. I didn't want you to go like this. Dad caught sight then of the first of Aaron's soldiers squeezing in through the door. He turned toward the back door, but stopped. His retreat was cut off there too. Dad turned back to Aaron. What is this? What are you doing? It's for your own good. Aaron motioned his soldiers in a little closer. Dad blanched. You're kidding, right? Come on, buddy, you can't. It's all right, Aaron said. Just surrender. Dad backed up against the wall. 
Look, he began, his voice an octave too high. I know you're probably mad at me. I understand. Really, I do. The soldiers closed in to within a few feet. But you have to understand. I did it for you, kiddo. I did it because I love you. I know, Aaron said. I love you too, Dad. The soldiers surrounded Dad then. He went down kicking and screaming under their pile of limbs, but his struggles were soon rendered ineffectual. He screamed for a long time, long and loud and shrill, until he wound down like the fading of a chainsaw motor. Finally, he was quiet. Aaron waved his soldiers away then. They retreated so Aaron could come forward to stand over his father. Dad lay there, his eyes open but unblinking. Most of his chest cavity had been devoured. A few organs lay underneath. Get up, Aaron ordered him. Dad had to obey. He lurched to his feet and stood. A clump of gore leaked out of him and dropped onto the carpet. Aaron went up to Dad and put his arms around him. He embraced his father, and Dad embraced him back. Aaron buried his head in the crook of Dad's strong, blood-soaked shoulder and inhaled the scent of rot. Eventually, Aaron broke the embrace. He stepped back. His eyes were wet, but he smiled. Aaron took his father's hand in his like he had when he was younger. Dad, he said, these are my men. That was Brian Rapida's The Dead March, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is the author of the grim, dark, steampunk, madcap fantasy novel Brothers of the Knife, first in the Children of Bane series, and co-authors the supernatural crime noir thriller series The Path of Ra, with Lee Murray. He has narrated stories for Tales to Terrify, Pseudopod, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies, among others and is currently producing and narrating the audiobook for the first Path of Ra novel, Hounds of the Underworld. He has been the recipient of the Australian Shadows Award three times, and New Zealand's Sir Jolius Vogel Award four times. Find him on the web at dan.raybarts.com. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. As I mentioned, we're finishing up Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we've got more exciting content planned. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage, talestoterrify.com.
And if you've got a minute to spare, we would love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews and ratings are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help keep us on the charts so we can terrify the minds of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Join us again next week as we dive deep into the disturbing with more Tales to Terrify. <laughs>